My name is George Galloway, presenter of Kale Mahorra on Al Maedin Television. One of you. I don't mince my words. I speak Kale Mahorra, and my audience does too. Kale Mahorra, free words, free for me, free for you. Catch it. Nice to meet you, brother. Welcome to Kalimahora with me, George Galloway, for Al Maedin Television, coming to you from London, but discussing the world, including your part of the world. What is that hoving into view? Is it a new world order, or what is that smell? Is it just the decomposing old world order? Who knows? But my distinguished group of experts in this panel in this show this evening, we'll seek to answer the question, is a new world order now emerging as the Ukraine-Russia-NATO war progresses, but may be heading towards a close, a close distinctly unfavorable to the NATO-United States side? It's easy to see now how Western sanctions against Russia have backfired disastrously. In the old Chinese proverb, they have struggled mightily to lift a huge stone only to drop it on their own feet. Joe Biden talking about Putin's price hike is having a devastating impact on the American economy, which is one interpretation, of course. Another would be that the United States imposed sanctions on Russia, which have backfired spectacularly on the United States, but somehow it's all Putin's fault. Despite at least $75 billion worth of military assistance to the government in Kiev, the war is going badly for the NATO side. Any military expert and any serious journalist will tell you that the tide of the war has irrevocably turned and will not turn back. In my own view, uh, by the end of this year, there will be two Ukraines, an East Ukraine and a West Ukraine. The exact relationship of the East Ukrainian territories to the Russian mothership, of course, remains to be determined. But that Eastern Ukraine will be the part of Ukraine that has all the access to the sea, all the access to the agricultural treasures of the former Ukrainian state, all the access to the industrialized areas of the Ukraine and the rump Ukraine, which will remain prey to Polish and even Hungarian ambitions to recover formerly lost territories will become, like Kosovo, a NATO dependency. And the economic plates, tectonic economic plates, which have moved as a result of the worldwide sanctions drive, will now shape uh, the 
economic order in the world, certainly for the rest of my lifetime. Uh, the Russian and Chinese states have moved so close together that you couldn't slip sixpence between them. This was a lifetime fear of President Richard Nixon, of Secretary Henry Kissinger, of uh, zealots and ideologues uh, like Zbigniew Brzezinski, who tried everything they could over so many decades to keep China and Russia as far apart from each other as they possibly could. But now Russia and China are effectively one state, at least on the economic and maybe even military level, and see things in the world through the same pair of spectacles. And countries like India, perhaps soon to be joined by Brazil, certainly already joined by Iran and countries like Venezuela, and many of the Latin American countries are beginning to see themselves, feel themselves as part of a different world order to that which is inhabited by 15% of the world's population that describes itself as the West. Now, of course, even within the West, there are deep divisions and, as Biden now acknowledges, deep economic problems, which may or may not be resolved. Enough from me. I'm just the enthusiastic amateur. My distinguished guests will provide the expert testimony, none more so than our old friend, the Reverend Father Frank Gelly, an Anglican priest from Rome. You must tell me sometime how that happened, how someone from Rome ends up in the church of England. God works in mysterious ways indeed. Uh, He's a cultural critic, a peace activist uh, of note, and holds degrees in philosophy, including theology, education, and Islamic studies from both London and Oxford universities. Welcome back, Father. How does the New World Order hoving interview look to you? Well, um, I'm a little bit sceptical about a whole new world order in the full sense of the word, but certainly there will be a reshuffle. In order to have a new world order, we need also to have a change of ideology. I don't see a new ideology emerging yet, but certainly I can see how many nations, South America, Africa, especially South America, enjoying a uh, leader like Putin who stands up to the might of the United States and uh, who does not accept the notion of uh, unipolarity, who uh, wants to have a more diverse world order in this sense. So I can see how, and in Africa, we know more than half of the African nations refuse to back the United Nations resolution condemning uh, Russia. And none of them are applying sanctions against Russia. None. Zero. No, no, indeed. Uh, but they may be, so to some extent, penalized by the result of the sanctions imposed on Russia, especially concerning uh, fuel, energy. And, uh, I mean, in, in Brazil, for example, they need to move many of the goods using trucks. If trucks do not have enough fuel, that's a real problem. And uh, leaving alone the question of fertilizer and so on. So... There will be many factors which will uh, increase uh, the um, criticism or hostility of the United United States. And also there is a question about the United Nations, which here uh, quite clearly 
it has proved itself to be as useful as on a motorbike. So there is also an argument maybe for reassessing the role of the United Nations. But it seems to me that it is a good scenario. You may say, I, there is a, I think a Ukrainian priest who invoked, in a sermon, evoked the notion of Cain and Abel from the Bible, book of Genesis, and his implication was that uh, Russia is like Cain, attacking a brother, um, Orthodox Christian nation, whereas uh, Ukraine would be innocent Abel. Now, first of all, in history, how many times Christian nations have fought each other? Uh, England was Catholic, Catholic France, slow blood spill. Scotland and England before Reformation were both Catholic countries and later after Reformation. So the question of being uh, brothers uh, is really irrelevant. You can fight for all sorts of reasons. Sad, that's a sad way we look at it. Christian, I hate the idea of um, blood being spilt. But the question here is, does, is there a third party putting up this particular fight? Is there in, in the book of Genesis, as if Satan is scratching at the door. So, is there sort of a devilish hand here? I don't mean in the metaphysical sense, in a practical sense. Namely, the question of uh, NATO, the United States, try to uh, stir up this animosity. Instead of uh, emphasizing the need for negotiation, the need for diplomacy, they're actually stirring up and fueling the uh, anti-Putin hysteria and hatred. And the little puppet Zelensky is playing the game very well. I don't want to overemphasize the fact he was a comedian. That's, that's not the point. But it seems to me he loves addressing foreign parliaments on Zoom and so on. Well, he should focus his energies or his energies on uh, diplomacy and try to find a negotiating settlement. That is, to me, the sensible thing to do. Uh, it's interesting that a former president Lula of uh, Lula da Silva, or Brazil, said both sides are responsible for this war. Now, it says here, Joe Lowry is an investigative journalist. That would be like calling Ronaldo merely a footballer. He is the investigative journalist. He is editor-in-chief of Consortium News, an absolutely daily necessity for those who wish to understand the world. He's a former correspondent of the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, and the Sunday Times, and he co-hosts a television show called CN Live. Joe, welcome to the show. It's your first time here. You're an American of sorts, though you travel the world. You're out of America more often than you are in it, so you have a global perspective. How do you see it? I think there already are two orders, world orders, uh, and this is something that Western countries maybe took note of back in the 90s when BRICS was established. It was a bit of consternation in the United States about this, but it was very condescending. Who do they think they are, essentially? And I think that concept of a multipolar world of other countries like those five in BRICS coming together was something, uh, again, dismissed and forgotten about in the Western media and uh, from Western officials. And now it has suddenly really cropped up and surprised them. And we had this battle going on between United States unipolarity and this emerging different system going on for a long time now. And there was a battle that uh, came to a head with the Ukraine uh, invasion, with the war that's going on right now. And in the response, I believe the United States uh, wanted and Britain wanted this invasion to happen. But otherwise, they could not launch a economic war. 
against Russia. You can't just put all those kinds of sanctions against the central bank, etc., without a cause. Uh, the information war, which we have seen explode right now, the, the destruction of Russian media in the United States, our team, and they couldn't just set, shut that down without a good reason. Well, they, they have their reason. And of course, the proxy war, which we're seeing now, the enormous amounts of weapons that are being sent to keep the war going as long as possible. They've said that now on the record. The ultimate aim is to overthrow the government in Russia because they would like, in my view, it's very clear, they want to go back to the days of Boris Yeltsin in the 90s in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union. The former state-owned industries were uh, asset-stripped by Wall Street, who came in. The rise of oligarchs came at that time. It impoverished the Russian people, but made a lot of people in the West very, very rich. Yeltsin even objected at that time to the expansion of NATO. But he was a weak puppet. And Putin came along. I think the West thought they would be able to work with him, and I think he wanted to work with the West. But it was in the 2007 Munich Security Conference speech in which he very clearly and strongly and stunned, I think many of the Western officials there said, we do not accept what the United States has done in Iraq, for example. This egregious unilateral attack on a country that was not a, a threat to the United States, that was the new Putin. That was the Putin that, has con- that the Russian people have supported. Why? Because he brought back an economic so- sovereignty to the country and a respect and was really no threat to the West. Uh, of course, he doesn't even have the military capability of being a other than nuclear weapons, of course. We have now seen that the United States pushing that NATO expansion. And back in the mid-90s, Joe Biden, who was a senator then, and the Foreign Relations Committee said that if there's anything that's going to make Russia hostile to us, it will be this. And he was right. They pushed that. They have. They did not get the uh, Ukrainian government to implement the Minsk Accords. They rejected out of hand two treaty proposals by Russia last December, one to NATO, one to the United States to create a new security architecture in Europe. Emmanuel Macron made some noises to understand that that's an issue, at least. It was just uh, out of hand rejected. So they wanted the war because if they had uh, implemented Minsk, if they had uh, accept at least negotiate with Russia over a new security arrangement based on these treaties, which could always have been changed and negotiated, then I think there would not have been this invasion. So they pushed, even the Pope has said that, the Pope, sorry. The Pope. No, no. <laughs> go ahead. The Pope said that uh, NATO was barking at Russia's door. Are we going to shut down the Pope now in his free speech as well? Because you can't even say these things. And this is the most, from our, my point of view as a journalist, and our own website has been under uh, uh, attack and targeted by PayPal that shut us down, by NewsGuard that's reviewing us. NewsGuard on whose board sits Michael Hayden, who was the former CIA and NSA director. And they have contracts or they have partnerships with Pentagon and State Department. This organization is reviewing us. What we've seen is the economic war against Russia has accelerated a process. What is now the Russians and the Chinese and India and, as you say, all of Africa, the most of the world, they're part of this emerging order and the Russians and Chinese working on a new monetary system, a new commercial system, on a new uh, financial uh, exchange system to replace SWIFT, for example. So we're seeing a whole new world. We're seeing a new Iron Curtain coming up, and they are going to create a world in which they cooperate, and the West is closing themselves in and hurting themselves with these economic sanctions, as you pointed out, George. If they wanted the war and they're losing it, does that mean they're idiots? You'd have to to ask that question. 
I don't know whether it's a lack of understanding of how much power they actually have. And it's in the United States. It's almost all military power now. They've gutted the industrial power of the country. They still have an enormous uh, cultural influence in the world with Hollywood, etc. And that's important, that soft power. But they think, and you said this once previously, George, I think that Biden and his clique, they think China, this is the China of 30 years ago. I think there's a certain arrogance that informed what they did, that, that Russia and China were countries that could still push around somehow. And they didn't understand, as I said at the beginning, when BRICS came, they were upset, but they didn't give enough of attention to what was developing in front of their eyes because of a condescension of the West towards the rest of the world. They had to have gotten advice that these sanctions would be a, a blowback against them. And I don't know whether they uh, took that advice or what they uh, plan to do. But right now, they will keep that proxy war going. Weakening Russia is what they want. And I think they're willing to take the bullet and take the hit, even if they knew. We'll take the economic hit at home if it means bringing down that Russian government so we can go back in like mm. in the 90s. Sure, but uh, taking the hit and not bringing the Russian <laughs> government down is a serious problem for them. Let's go to Germany, where Vahram Ivazian, an Armenian scholar, he's based in Armenia, but he's on a short trip to Germany. He's the founder of the Armenian Network State, a pan-Armenian movement uniting the world's Armenians. Vahram, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, you have been in Ukraine in the past. Tell us about your understanding of the conflict. I was in Russia in, uh, in 2013, and I was in Ukraine in March 2014 after Maidan. Uh, uh, the protests, uh, and uh, I was actually taking part in a conference in Lviv, uh, in Ukraine on on the Maidan uh, and Russia-Ukraine conflict uh, topics. Uh, so um, what I can see is that uh, is that uh, the West uh, has been trying their best uh, to make Ukrainians, I mean, believe that uh, Russians and Ukrainians don't have any connection with each other. I mean, in terms of, you know, um, civilizational connections, uh, um, in, uh, I mean, cultural connections, etc. But I think my opinion is Ukraine is somehow being used as a, a platform for anti-Russian campaign. I mean, military, political, etc. And uh, and the, uh, peaceful Ukrainians are getting killed. And uh, it doesn't mean that I am I am trying to to say that Putin is right. No, definitely uh, that's an aggression from his side. Some said that the Cold War belonged to the past, but we're very definitely into a new Cold War now, aren't we? Or actually into a new hot war. A uh, very good question and a uh, very sad topic, actually, because, I mean, people, I mean, uh, peaceful people are killed. Uh, the, in the Cold War, what we had, uh, the big ones didn't clash with each other. They would basically clash with their satellite states and the puppet states, to put it that way, okay? For example, I mean, fighting in Afghanistan, in Vietnam. But now what we see is uh, these hybrid wars uh, have a very big probability of becoming a big large-scale hot war between the uh, big players uh, because one miscalculation and it will take us to a nuclear clash or it will take us to to a direct clash between, uh, for example, European countries and Russia. But will this conflict be limited to Ukraine and contained? I'm absolutely certain that uh, it will not end here and it will 
uh, have repercussions. I mean, in other regions too. And uh, I can point out actually East Asia, uh, definitely, uh, uh, Taiwan conflict and the Pacific Islands, all the stuff between China, the USA. And uh, we, we also can see conflict I- uh, ideology rising in Latin America, where I lived, by the way, before, between, for example, Colombia and Venezuela. As an Armenian, tell us, has this conflict affected Armenia also? We as Armenians are already, I mean, uh, facing, I mean, difficulties with this, but also uh, opportunities. Uh, um, a lot of, I mean, um, uh, IT, for example, companies, I mean, from Russia, from Ukraine, I mean, come to Armenia to establish themselves there uh, in order to, I mean, continue their, uh, you know, businesses. Uh, and I can say that uh, thousands of people from Russia and Ukraine are already in Armenia. Uh, Daniel O'Brien, you're a leading member of the Workers' Party of Britain, and you're also a, a computer man, a software engineer. In all this talk of conflicts, no one except a leading member of the Workers' Party has paid too much attention to the conflict inside the countries that are behind the conflict. So the Conflict that seems inevitable in the United States, in Britain, perhaps especially in Germany, but in France also, as the economic blowback uh, intensifies, who's going to pay the price for all this? Well, that would be the ordinary workers of these countries. But I think that was going to be inevitable anyway. There is obviously going to be extra pressure from uh, the effects of the war, the effects of the Russian sanctions, um, I think our governments are dreading when winter comes and if they don't sort out the, the gas and oil that they've cut off from Russia or are trying to cut off. You know, these um, issues that are going to affect the working class, lack of goods, lack of jobs, uh, lack of being able to even heat, afford petrol or to heat the home, uh, those were going on anyway. And that's um, coming back to uh, Reverend and Joe talking about uh, different world orders uh, that's a result of you know, the free market uh, capitalist ideology that we have in Britain, the US, and that they seek to push on the rest of the world. They pushed it on Russia. Um, you know, that was what NATO was formed for, was countering the Soviet Union, countering communism. Uh, but in reality, we see that now, with the Soviet Union gone, the Russian alpha having NATO around uh, gone, uh, they've still gone on to uh, invade and occupy many other countries, destabilise them, uh, hold coups, and that's because uh, the US and uh, the UK uh, and the rest of Western Europe rely on exploiting other nations for our wealth. And that's why we've moved all the factories, not us, we didn't do it. Um, the, the ruling class, the bosses did, because they can make more money if they moved those factories out of this country. So they, they've asset stripped uh, Britain and the US mostly, uh, moved all the manufacturing out, and now we rely on the crumbs that come down from the exploitation of these uh, other countries. But, as pointed out, these other countries, Russia and China, are starting to stand up. So our ruling class is faced with the choice, really. They can back down, start cooperating with Russia and China, stop being aggressive, um, or they can continue on that way, possibly to starting World War Three. In the first instance, which is unlikely to happen because of the laws of competition, um, you know, that would be uh, the end of all this and we could probably live in peace. But they're likely to continue pushing it because they're driven by these laws. 
You think they're shocked, though, by what's happening on the ground in the war? Do you take the view that I do and Joe expressed that actually they underestimated, as George Bush would put it, they misunderestimated uh, the Russian military strength and development? I think they were hoping the Ukrainians could uh, put up a much better fight and draw it out into a long, uh, bloody war. Um, you know, they funded and supported and armed uh, groups uh, across the world in, in various other countries. Um, you know, in Libya, they've, they've sent jihadis across. In, um, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, they've been funding Mahajideen uh, in, in the past, um, all to, to try and fight their enemies, fighting this proxy war. Britain, shamefully, um, the first delivery of uh, anti-tank weapons went to the Azov Battalion, uh, one of one of several battalions in Ukraine that proudly wear Nazi insignia on them. Don't worry, it's, it's probably in Russian hands uh, already. Much more after the break. Stay tuned. Watching Kalimahorra with me, George Galloway, on Almaydeen Television, discussing, well, the whole world. The Reverend Frank was desperate to butt in on Dan O'Brien's contribution. Oh, what I, did you want to say? I, I do back what Danny was saying, but I mean, I've been to Ukraine. That was in 2001. And we went to, I was in Kiev, we went to Odessa, and also we went to Winnesap which was one of Hitler's headquarters during his war on the East. As, as we were walking around, as some friends are speaking English, the two lads sitting on a wall, they, shot, they did uh, the razor and they shouted, Hey, Hitler! They said. Oh. Now, uh, that, this may be just a coincidence, an anecdote, but maybe... Well, historically, there have been rather a few uh, well, Hitlerites uh, uh, in, uh, uh, yes, in Ukraine. Yeah. Let's go to the Donbass formerly at least a part of Ukraine, and talk to another war and investigative journalist, Johnny Miller. He's in uh, the Donbass, in, in Donetsk. He's previously covered all kinds of wars, Libya, Syria, uh, and elsewhere. And uh, he's there right now. Let's speak to him. Johnny. Thank you, George. Johnny, are we getting the true picture of what's happening in Ukraine? You are virtually alone there as a war and investigative reporter on the eastern side. Well, I'm a journalist here in the uh, Donetsk People's Republic, a separatist side, if you will, the pro-Russian side. And so if you're a journalist uh, on one side or the other, you're going to see a very different picture of the war. But what's interesting is that uh, there's almost no... Uh, journalists from a NATO-speaking country, from a mainstream news network here in the east of the country in Donbass. Um, and we're certain there's no uh, English-speaking either British or American journalists from a mainstream news outlet here. So what I can tell you is, in terms of the conflict of what I see here, uh, if I was a journalist on, in, in Western Ukraine, and no doubt I'd be reporting on Russian strikes. But here in Donbass, in Donetsk, particularly the stories of Ukrainian strikes, I'm standing 
right in front of a school right now, what used to be a school. It was hit uh, just about 10 days ago. Uh, There's another school just around the corner hit both a shelling from the Ukrainian uh, army. Uh, and this story is, is just not being reported. Whenever I don't have anything else to do as a journalist, I have nothing planned. I simply follow the sound of the incoming. And there's dozens of, of missiles hitting the city every day. Uh, and but when I got to the fifth school uh, that had been hit on as, in as many days, the penny started to drop. And I asked my translator, a local woman with a two-year-old daughter herself, is the Ukrainian army intentionally shelling schools? And she replied as if it was the most normal thing in the world. Well, yes, that's what they've been doing for eight years. It's over a hundred schools and kindergartens that have been hit in the last eight years. Uh, and so why is that? It's a very famous speech by Petro Poroshenko, the former Ukrainian president, in which he says, our school, our, t- our, our children, i.e. in Kiev, will be learning in, in, in schools and kindergartens, whereas their, their, uh, children, i.e. the people, the rebel held areas in Donetsk will be cowering in basements. And that's exactly what they're doing. They, they, this conflict is, is in part a proxy war between Russia and NATO. But at its heart, it's also a civil war and an ethno-cultural war. Uh, in 2014, uh, a, a nationalist Ukrainian government came to power in Kiev. The first thing they did was stop Russian being used as a state language. Uh, Russian, this, uh, right-wing militias started going around Ukraine, pulling down Russian statues. And then uh, pro-Russian people started... Uh, uh, peacefully protesting. Many of them were killed, particularly in, at an event in Odessa. And so you had the, the eastern area of the country rise up. Not far from me here is Lenin Square, the central square in Donetsk. It's a huge statue of Lenin. Outside, outside the drama theater, there's a statue of the famous Russian poet Pushkin. This is, a, this is a Russian-speaking, proudly Russian area. And that's why they rose up. And so for the last eight years, and it's incredible, this has just not been covered, that the Ukrainian nationalists have been trying to uh, that's why they've been hitting schools as well, trying to push these Russian people out of their land. That's why you have the separatists rising up. So at its heart, it's a civil war between uh, Ukrainian nationalists and uh, pro-Russian separatists. Johnny, what, how do you think the uh, Western media has become so one-sided? Impartiality has uh, become a, a joke in terms of coverage of this war. Well, George, uh, as I said, this... There's almost no Western journalists here. And if they were here, I mean, some people might agree, disagree with me, but I think most journalists have some semblance of uh, trying to tell the truth about what's around them. And if they were here, it's just impossible not to get away from the fact that Ukraine is shelling these civilians every day. Just like most areas of Donetsk, uh, my area has been shelled. It's 15 meters, literally 15 meters out of my, outside my door. A ground missile landed. Most of my windows were blown out. I can literally just have to look out my window to see evidence of Ukrainian war crimes. And of course, that uh, truth, I mean, that uh, Russia is being blamed for, for shelling civilians, killing civilians in the west of the country. But the truth is that Ukraine has been doing the same thing for the last eight years. And of course, telling that truth might be uncomfortable. It's much easier just to tell people that Russia, Putin's gone crazy, he's mad, he's invading. But the, the, the truth is a little bit more complicated than that. Um, when this conflict started, or when, when Russia invaded on the 24th of February, it was clear to me anyway that there is a, there is a, there's a way there, there is a way to have peace in Ukraine. It's clear that the East here no longer wants to be part of Ukraine, and it's very understandable. You speak to people here, you can understand why. Uh, and so the, there was a peaceful solution to this at the beginning of giving people in the East, particularly, a, a choice, a referendum of what they want to do for the future. 
But increasingly, as I said, it's become a proxy war between Russia and, uh, and, and NATO. And, and don't get me wrong, Russia's pumping out a lot of propaganda as well. Uh, Russia calls this a, a special military operation. Russian journalists on TV have to call it a special military operation. I speak to Russian journalists here and in private, they call it a war and they call it an invasion. Russia has sent its troops into another country. It's an invasion. Um, and, and there is some other Russian propaganda, no doubt about it. So it's very much in terms of uh, becoming a proxy war. Uh, Russia is telling its people one thing, and indeed Russia is telling its people every day that they are winning. And Ukraine and NATO are telling their people every day that they are winning. Uh, and so there's propaganda going on on, on both sides. Uh, but both sides aren't really telling the truth, or at least telling the whole truth uh, about what's happening here. The, the picture that you have painted for us uh, feels gloomy to me because neither side of this conflict uh, can feel, hear, see the other. Well, this is why I feel it's important my work being here as one of the only Western journalists here to try and tell the story of the, the separatists, the rebels in this side of, of, of the conflict in order to create peace. Every journalist got an angle, and I'll be honest, my angle is uh, trying to create peace here. Whether I'll achieve that, I, I don't know, but I'll try to do my best. But in terms of peace to happen, you have to understand both sides of the conflict. You have to understand why the separatists, why the rebels uh, have been fighting uh, for eight years. Uh, there has been some Russian support, but it's unclear about how much there has been. This, this uprising in East was genuine amongst the people. And any journalist here who's come here will, will tell you that. And so it's important for both sides to listen to both sides. And unfortunately, with the propaganda battle that's going on, NATO is being told just to send more weapons. Send more. I saw one headline in a Western outlet, I won't, I won't mention, which said, send more weapons to Ukraine to save lives, which is straight out of George Orwell. War is, war is peace. Sending more Ukraine, uh, weapons to Ukraine is not going to save lives. It's going to create more death and destruction. Uh, and that's the danger now that's, that, that's happening in Ukraine. The more, it's almost a paradox, the more that NATO supports Ukraine, the more weapons it sends, the more ru destruction Russia will do to Ukraine. Russia can hit uh, Ukrainian cities at will with its missiles. It's made clear uh, they will do so uh, if you, NATO continues to send weapons. So you just have this constant uh, war machine on both sides uh, grinding, frankly, uh, especially around here, these cities around here into the dust. Finally, uh, Johnny, uh, how do the people there feel about the massive torrent of new weaponry, heavy, powerful weaponry, that may very well be the weapons that are destroying the school behind you, for example, is arriving from Western countries. Do they feel pessimistic that this means this war will drag on and on? Well, the Donetsk People's Republic say that this strike was done by um, new NATO weapons. This is in the center of town, and they feel that now the center's being hit. It wasn't before, and that's because of NATO weapons. Every day, you've done the extra shell by dozens of missiles. Almost every day. I'm just saying almost, just to cover myself, because I'm sure there is the odd day when nobody is killed, but almost every day people are killed. And um, NATO is trying to get insurances from Ukraine that they won't shoot and fire these missiles at Russia. But at least publicly, there's been no assurances from NATO that they won't use these heavy weapons to kill and shell civilians, because that's what they've been doing for eight years. So the fear is that NATO weapons, and I think people in NATO, living in NATO countries, may be very concerned to know that schools like this may well be targeted with NATO weapons. Um, I'll just finish by saying, 
this war very much reminds me of the, the a quote by Voltaire, the 7th, 18th century French philosopher, in which he says that uh, men seem to want to be more interested in cutting each other's throats and ruining each other's fortunes over a few paltry uh, villages rather than extending the ideal of human happiness. And that really much reminds me of what's happening in Ukraine. Those paltry villages uh, that Russia and Ukraine are fighting over near here have names like Kramatorsk, Izium, Severodonetsk. Uh, and in terms of ruining each other's fortunes, the sanctions on Russia have done some damage, no doubt, but not the kind of damage the West wanted, and uh, certainly, uh, certainly not terminal to Russia. But they've also backfired massively and uh, damaging the living standards, particularly of people in Europe, and threatening uh, uh, starvation, frankly, in countries in the developing world. Uh, and it's just madness that this war is damaging seemingly all sides and very few people are actually benefiting from it. Joe, it's not, of course, an accident or a coincidence that there are no Western journalists except Johnny and a few others uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine. This is a matter of deliberate choice, at least by their employers, if not by them. I don't share uh, Johnny's belief that if they were there, uh, that they would faithfully report the truth. But that's just maybe me. But I put it to you as a journalist of great standing. This has been the lowest point of Western journalism, even in the Iraq war, certainly in the Vietnam war. Journalists reported what was happening even to the detriment of their own government standing at home. Here, the entire media, virtually, has been dragooned or allowed itself to fall in with the Western narrative. And anyone who stands against it, like you and Consortium News, as you put it, comes immediately under attack and the danger of closure. Yes, well, um, that's the case. Um, in Vietnam... The soldiers were there reporting, as you said, even if it showed the U.S. losing. And that put it, they put an end to that. That was the first Gulf War in 1991 where they came up with this idea of embedding the troops. Because the media was blamed by some of the generals in the U.S. for losing the war. It wasn't U.S. strategy. It wasn't the Vietnamese fighting back. It was the media that did. It was absurd, of course. And you also saw in the Vietnam era this phenomenon where genuine domestic protesters in the U.S. against this murderous policy in Vietnam were smeared as being stooges of Hanoi, Beijing, or Moscow. This is an old trick that governments have played, and they've brought this back now. If you should question some of the U.S. policy, if you should question why didn't the United States insist on Minsk being implemented, why didn't the United States negotiate these treaties with Russia, why did the United States seemingly look at 60,000 troops on the Donbass border while all we saw in Western newspapers maps were the Russians on the border those weeks where they were screaming invasion. It was like a chessboard where you only saw the black pieces. You never saw that there were the Ukraine had moved at least 60,000 troops there. OSCE shows that the bombardment began towards the end of February inside the separatist area, not the government side. And Russia says they have intelligence. I can't obviously know whether it's true or not that there was going to be an offensive. This is the trap I think the U.S. laid for Russia so they could introduce the economic information and proxy war, which I don't think is going to end soon. Even if Russia should take all of Novorussia and go all the way to the border of Romania, there's going to be a huge border to defend and there will be, I think, constant attacks there. But as far as the media goes, this is a very scary time where I think it's important to get the public. This is wartime type 
censorship where Britain and the United States are not at, officially at war with Russia. But they act that way. So it's, it's also a function of social media. Back in the previous days, you could easily control three television networks in the United States or a couple here in Britain, BBC one or two, and one or two private channels. But this has changed. Everyone can be a citizen journalist. Everyone has a Twitter feed where they can influence thousands of people. They could start their own uh, webcast. They could start their own publications on the internet. Indeed, ours began in 1995 on the internet, one of the first online newspapers. Now, dozens, thousands of people. How do you control those individuals? They've lost control of the narrative. I think this is why we're seeing these new efforts of disinformation companies burgeoning, uh, working with government to try to put down any spark of dissent lest it should grow. And there's fertile ground because everyone is connected in a way they never were before. So this is a really big problem from the government's point of view in terms of getting a narrative behind a war that they're not officially in, but are indeed uh, actually fighting. And they've got to shut down even up, we get 10,000 readers a day. It's gone up to about 40 because of the war. Is this, are we a really a threat to the government of the United States or Britain? Why are, and it's not just our independent website, they're going after many of them right now who dare question the enforced narrative. And you know, you don't even have to be right all the time. Maybe we're wrong, but we have a right to that analysis and it's our own agency, our own editorial judgment. We have nothing to do with any foreign government, whether in finance or in any other influence. And we can prove that we're getting an audit, an outside audit that's going to show that we don't get any money from any, any government or advertiser, but that they need to smear people. They need this control. It's very, very, very scary what's going on right now. Who knows where it's going to lead? But I think it's the unique circumstances of the age of social media that's bringing this type of control over uh, information. Father, what, uh, what's the impact on the Middle East, the Arab world, the Muslim world of all of this? Which side do they come down on if there are now two world orders? Well, of course, we go back to the idea of imperialism and anti-colonialism, which many people in the Middle East are quite familiar with. So they feel, many do feel ex- exceedingly wary or the American narrative and the European narrative, because they suffered, they have it on their own skin. The uh, invasion of Iraq, that was an invasion. I mean, uh, Libya also being destroyed, bombing NATO and so on, living, uh, living out of Afghanistan also. So I, for uh, the kind of vibes I get, of course, that uh, the Arabs are very, and not just the Arabs, the Iranians, are very wary of what is going on. But um, uh, the question is, I'm sure the, the people of the Middle East... What you're East, saying is Russia's small-c conservatism, at least on social matters, squares with the Muslim world, the Arab world, maybe more it, than, it's only one. More than Kamala it's only Harris. one angle. I'm not saying an overarching angle, but it is one angle. And of course, Russia has got big uh, Muslim minorities, which are not, uh, not at the moment anyway, being persecuted or discriminated against. So in that sense, there is no um, reason to be anti-Russian. But the wider argument is, of course, of this new, the idea of the new world order, which this war is maybe trying in some ways to implement. Um, I, uh, I was very interested in what uh, the Armenia chap was saying. Uh, one, actually, I'll come back to it in a moment, is the danger of possible nuclear war, which I think is real, the way America is going. 
if there was a small nuclear tactic or a local weapon used by the Russians at some stage, if America retaliated, all the, all, you know, the entire new game. I don't think of this as a hypothetical. It is real. Uh, going back also to the obsessive demonization, uh, hatred of Putin, KGB and so on, George Bush Sr., well, had he not been the head of the CIA? <laughs> Does anybody mention that? I mean, uh, but also um, the, the guy from Donbass. Uh, I mean, Ukraine has been a cleft country for a long time. The Western Ukraine, one under the Aegis, Polish influence, Ukrainian speaking, in connection with the, the Uniate Catholic Church, uh, Eastern Ukraine, uh, Orthodox and more related to Russia, and many Eastern Ukrainians complained about feeling threatened and discriminated by Ukrainian um, nationalism. So um, there is nothing new there. It is a cleft country, and you've got to acknowledge, take account of its reality. My chief concern as a Christian, there should be an emphasis from all quarters on negotiation, on diplomacy. We should come to some sort of compromise. You hinted uh, at before that the conclusion of the war would be some kind of settlement. I don't know what shape the settlement would take, uh, but, I mean, it should be a well, negotiated I, 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 It might not be settled, but I think that that's what the outcome will be. It, there's no saying de facto, de facto. Kiev will accept it, because to accept it would mean the end of sanctions against Russia and so on. But it seems to me the river Dnieper is what the border between... But also, I have a question. The, the incredibly one-sided and partisan Western media are putting across a narrative that the Russians are losing the war, reiterating this, whereas, in fact, that is not the case. Uh, but the, the, it is not. And uh, the freedom of uh, no serious journalist is any longer arguing that. They shut down RT to, to channel. Yeah, I mean, they'll tell you... There are many unserious journalists. That's the problem. Dan, last word to you... Um, you're sympathetic to China at least and I think sympathetic to Russia in so far as it is standing up against NATO. Do you feel optimistic about what lies ahead? Yes and no. Like the Reverend mentioned, there is a real threat of nuclear war and I think that's the, the main thing, keep mentioning negotiation. Um, but uh, Zelensky went to the front lines in uh, Zelot in uh, October 2019, I think it was. Uh, he was elected on a, on a platform of peace and negotiation. A peace ticket, yeah. Um, he was told in no uncertain terms uh, to go packing by the nationalists and the Nazis on the front line. But he went to ask them to stop firing, to stop shelling the Donbass, uh, which killed over 20,000 people since uh, 2014. Uh, and they told him to go packing. And th those are the kind of people that... NATO, the US, our government is supporting. And I think it's, it's very real necessity for the working class in Britain, but also across the West in these countries. These countries are instigating uh, these wars. They're creating the propaganda, which is a war crime, by the way. Um, you know, that was established after World War II. If you print war propaganda, you are a war criminal. <laughs> I think uh, our journalists would do well to uh, read up on that history. Um, I think our working class really needs to get organised and we need to, A, spread information. This war is not in our interest. It's not in our interest to supply Ukraine with arms. It's not in our interest to fund Nazi gangs. Life is getting worse for the people, uh, for the people in this country and the West. And 
the people that are making life worse for us are making these decisions that could lead us to World War Three. So we need to get organised. We need to start uh, spreading this information and we need to start getting seriously organised as an anti-war movement to say no to shipping these arms to Ukraine, to say no to supporting uh, these Nazis in Ukraine, but not just because they're Nazis, although I'm very, very against Nazis, but because war is in general bad and these people do not have the best interests. And us, all the Ukrainian people, all the Russian people at heart, they have their own uh, bank accounts as their only interest. Well, the war drags on. I don't believe that our debate about the new world order that may well be emerging from the war has dragged on at all. Some spirited argument uh, in favour of my thesis, which is that no good will come of this whole imperial adventure, that NATO will not benefit from it. And the working class people in NATO countries will far from benefiting from it, will suffer greatly as a result. I believe that while the new world order may not yet be ready to be born, the old world order can no longer govern. It can no longer dictate the pace and course of world events. That the tide has turned and it won't be turning back. I've been George Galloway. This has been Kare Mahora on Al Maidin Television. Thank you very much for watching and join us again next week.